Well, uh, I want to invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me this morning to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms, Psalm 22. We're going to look at the entirety of this psalm. Um, Remember that these uh, Sundays leading up to uh, Easter Sunday, we're we're thinking about the, the life and the death of Jesus Christ and its significance for us. And so last time... We went to the Garden of Gethsemane and we saw the resolute commitment of our Savior to do the will of his Father for our salvation. And today we're jumping ahead to to Golgotha, the place of Jesus' crucifixion. You know, when you think about it, (coughs) uh, the, the reality of Christ's Crucifixion is central to the Christian faith, isn't it? Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I delivered to you as a matter of first importance that Jesus died for our sins. But when you, uh, when you think about how central and fundamental the death of Jesus is to the Christian faith, it, it might come as a surprise to recognize how little attention it actually receives in the gospel accounts telling us about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Uh, For for example, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark simply say they crucified him. And that's it. No no further detail, really, about um, how crucifixion took place. None of the the details about the nails piercing his hands and feet being fastened to a tree and, 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 and raised. None of that. And we go a step further. The the Gospel of Matthew actually uh, tells us about the crucifixion as as an introductory clause in a sentence. And so in Matthew chapter 27, verse uh, 35, it, it simply says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments. See that? The, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is set right alongside of, in terms of significance, set right alongside of the division of Jesus' garments. And the Gospel of Mark puts it the same way. He, Mark says, they crucified him and divided his garments. Now that should raise a question, I think, in our minds. Why, why do Matthew and Mark give, us, uh, give the same amount of attention to the crucifixion as they do to the division of Jesus' garments. I mean, don't, don't you think the crucifixion is more significant than the custom of soldiers you know, ca- casting lots and dividing up a criminal's possessions? So that we, we need to ask, why, why do Matthew and Mark recount the details in the way that they do? And he, here's what I think is the right answer, okay? Here's why I think they do it. Because the mention of the dividing of Jesus' garments is an interpretive key. A key that is given to us, which leads us to another part of the scriptures that unfolds in more detail the significance of the suffering of Christ on the cross and what it means for us. Uh, The text, the one I have in mind, of course, is the one we're looking at today, Psalm 22. 
And in Psalm 22, uh, verses 16 through 18, we, we find these words. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, it isn't just those few verses that I, I've read. I, I want to suggest and, and help us understand today that really all of Psalm 22 prophetically and vividly describes what happened at Calvary. And, and here's the thing, it, it does so as if it were coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. Christ's voice is the voice we ought to hear when we hear the reading of Psalm 22. Yes, this is a psalm of David, but this is David speaking prophetically the detailed narrative of Christ's crucifixion. And even more than Christ's own description of what happened to him, Psalm 22 provides us with the the theological lens through which we are to view Jesus' crucifixion and death and its significance for, for us. It explains, in other words, the saving significance of the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it does so through Jesus' own voice. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to, to hear Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. 
A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all of you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth, eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. I think knowing the structure of this psalm will help us get on our way here to appreciating its its message. In verses 1 through 21, there is a pattern that repeats, a pattern that reoccurs three times. First, there's a set of verses where Christ describes his suffering, what he is experiencing followed by a set of verses where we see Christ's trust, his faith in God. So think of it as a wave. A wave of suffering comes in, and as that wave recedes, we see the the, the unshakable rock of Christ's trust in God as he casts himself on the goodness and faithfulness of God. So let's work our way through these, uh, these sections here in the first 20, 21 verses. Having a look at this first wave in verses 1 through 5. You'll notice that this psalm does not um, work its way up to a, a climactic description of the suffering of Christ. It, it begins with it, doesn't it? It begins at the apex and pinnacle of the sufferings of Jesus in verse 1. You know, we could say a great deal about the the physical pain that Jesus experienced on the cross, the the horrors involved in 
Roman crucifixion. But as terrible as the physical sufferings of crucifixion are, it isn't really the true horror of the cross. The true horror of the cross is described for us in this cry of dereliction, which Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what could Jesus possibly mean by that? We've got to be careful here and and not misunderstand it. We, We know God is one. We know that as Jesus told us that he is one with the Father, that the Son is one with the Father and the Spirit in the indivisible unity of the Trinity. The Trinity cannot be splintered. The Trinity cannot be divided. There is no breach in the fellowship of the divine persons on the cross. You need to understand that. And yet Jesus is the God-man. He is the Son who took on flesh. He, he took on flesh and blood and a human soul. And, and throughout his life and ministry, all he has known is the, the smile and approval and embrace of his heavenly father. And on the cross, as the sin bearer, as the substitute, he cries out from the depths of his soul, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Why? You see, because the sin, our sin, our sin counted to him has has caused the light of the countenance of his father's face to be hidden from him altogether. It's not that his father's love for him has ceased. It's not that he doubted his father's love for him. It's that he no longer has any personal conscious awareness of it. Any experience of it in this moment. He, he's not conscious of it. Everything in this moment in fact speaks to the contrary as the unmitigated wrath of God is focused on him and poured out on him as he is made to drink as we talked about last time. The cup of the wrath of the fury of Almighty God to the very last drop. This is what it felt like for Jesus to be treated as our sins deserve. This is the reality of what was taking place on Calvary. Perhaps you've heard it described in in these terms that it is the ironic benediction in reverse. We, we know the ironic benediction, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord lift up his uh, face upon you, the, the Lord uh, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Right? Think about the ironic benediction in reverse. What was happening to Jesus? The Lord curse you and forsake you. The Lord turn his face away from you and And be wrathful to you. The Lord lift up his sword against you. And give you hell. That's what it meant. That's what it meant. For Jesus to be crucified. Christ made to be sin for us. Christ pierced for our transgressions. And crushed for our iniquities. Forsaken 
so that we could be forgiven and reconciled. See, he received in his own body and soul the judgment our sin deserves so that we might be the recipients of divine mercy. I think it's also crucial for us to to know that Jesus' question here is, is not a cry of unbelief. It isn't spiteful. See, through through the anguish and the suffering that Jesus is enduring on the cross, it remains a cry of faith. Though his conscious uh, sense of his father's love is, is veiled here, he still calls out nonetheless, doesn't he? My God, my God, amidst unfathomable grief. And I think it may be important for us to just pause there and and recognize that Jesus, by asking that question, if I can put it this way, he sanctifies that question for us as well. For us, when we find ourselves wrestling with realities we, we don't understand, Troubles that overwhelm us and, and we can't comprehend why. why. Why is this happening? Pain and tragedy, hard providences that, as it were, throw a veil over our sense that God is with us and loves us and is for us in Christ. See, in a time when, when Jesus couldn't see or feel or sense the upholding support and presence and love of his Father, he clung to God clung to him. And that teaches us at the very least, dear friends, that Jesus Christ is the perfect repository of grace for us when we find ourselves likewise crying out to God when he seems to be far off. When he seems to not hear, not answer. Well, the second, the second part of this, uh, this couplet begins in verse 3. And it runs through verse 5. You can see that with the paragraph division in in most translations. The first wave of suffering, as it recedes, it reveals the faith of Jesus. And notice the first thing Jesus does is he, he recites to his own heart the faithfulness of God to the fathers. He, he, he rehearses the faithfulness of God to his people in the past. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted you. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and you delivered them. They trusted in you and were not put to shame. Now, I am, I am convinced that Jesus relied on the entirety of this psalm while he hung on the cross. One of the reasons I think that is because he uses this psalm to express what he's experiencing in the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he also appeals to the very last words of this song in his own words before he hung his head and gave up his life. He said, it is finished. Which is repeating the words of Psalm 22. The Lord has done it. So imagine while Jesus is offering himself as a sacrifice and enduring in his 
own body and soul, the wrath of God against his sin, what was he doing? He was reciting the past faithfulness of God. He was remembering that God had promised to deliver his people and throughout history he had kept that promise in different ways. And he sustained his faith and hope by remembering these promises and the past faithfulness of God. And friend, what a lesson that is for us. Because this is something we can do when trials come down on us. Remember the faithfulness of God throughout all generations. Remember those who trusted in him and how he delivered them. Remember that those who put their trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. I'm convinced this is what Jesus was doing on the cross to to sustain his, his faith even in the extremities of Calvary. He remembered and proclaimed to his own heart the faithfulness of God. That God delivers those who put their trust in him. And then the next wave of of suffering, it's described to us in verses 6 through 8. And and this time Jesus is describing the the dehumanizing effects of his own humiliation. And the mockery that he endured on the cross. This 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 is how he felt. Look at what it says. I am a worm. And not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now, you've got to think about how shocking those words really are coming from the mouth of the Son of God. I am a worm. And not a man. Put that in the larger context of you know, Psalm 8, for example. <laughs> what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? The psalmist asks the Lord. And well, the incarnation, what does it tell us? The Lord cares so much for man that he was willing to take on human flesh. And now here is the son of God. In our flesh. Calling himself a worm. And I think the significance of this is. What does it mean to say I am a worm and not a man? It's I think communicating. In this this moment he, he felt worthless. He felt dispensable in his forsakenness. Enduring such mockery, he felt utterly dispensable. I think that's the idea here. You know, we, we, look, at, we look at what's going on in a place like, like Ukraine, and we rightly mourn and lament the terrible loss of life that's taking place there. But I'm hard-pressed to find anyone who's worried about the worms, right? Um... They are, they are the creaturely epitome of dispensability, if I can put it that way. And the significance of this, we could go a step further, is, is not simply that others are treating Jesus like a worthless worm and not a man. 
It is, if, if we read this carefully, this is actually how Jesus describes his own sense of self on the cross. I am a worm and not a man, forsaken by God, utterly disgraced by the world. Jesus feels like the lowest of the low. I wonder if you understand what that means for us, what that means for the Christian life. You know, for, for, for any of, of you who have, who have suffered the stripping away of your dignity, for, for any of you who have ever endured mocking, cruelty, shaming, the gospel says in Jesus, you, you have a savior who has, who has been there. A savior who has experienced it. He, he knows what it is to be dehumanized and shamed. Taking a step back for a moment, remember that before he even gets to the cross, Jesus is, is stripped of his clothing and he's abused. You know, Mark, Mark tells us that an entire Roman battalion is brought together to have sport with Jesus. And I don't think any of us need to spell out the sort of things that took place when that happened. And then Jesus is clothed again and hauled off to Golgotha where he's stripped down again and nailed naked to a tree. That, that's our Jesus, dear friends. That's our Savior. And it, it tells us that he is able to sympathize and give grace to people who have experienced this kind of shame and dishonor. You, you may not feel like anybody understands, like you have nowhere to turn, that nobody could possibly get it. And the gospel says, no, that's not true. You can, you can, go, you can go to Jesus. You can bring your griefs and your sorrows and your shame to him. And in verses 9 through 11, the, the waves of suffering once again recede for a moment, exposing Jesus' unwavering trust and dependence on God. And this time it is nourished not by a rehearsal of God's past faithfulness to the fathers, but a rehearsal of God's faithfulness in his own life. And so we read, but you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. You can put it this way. Jesus is, Jesus is recounting, he's remembering himself as a covenant child. And he traces the ways that from his earliest recollections, God has been his God. God made him to trust from his infancy, from the womb. God has been with him. And, you know, some of us have a similar testimony, don't we? Don't we? Some of us would say, you know, by something like, by God's grace, I'm a, I'm a covenant child, and I, I, don't, I don't remember a day when I, when I did not trust God, when I didn't trust in the Lord and didn't have God as my God. I grew up trusting him and grew into that faith, fleeing sin, 
trusting in the gospel, relying on God. And, and, and maybe, though, maybe we've been brought to think that that is somehow an inferior Christian testimony. <laughs> well, I want to say, it, as by way of reminders, no, no, it's not. Did you ever realize that's actually Jesus' testimony? <laughs> uh, it, from his mother's breast, from his mother's wombs, he said, I trusted in you, I look to you, you've been my God. That's, that's the way it's meant to be in, in covenant homes. But come, come back to Jesus and, and see what he's doing here. He, he uses God's faithfulness in his own life to encourage his, his heart. So in the crucible of the most intense suffering, he recounts how God has been his God all of his days. And maybe, maybe we need to take another lesson there and learn to reread our life stories with the covenant-keeping God as the central character in the life of our stories. So when you do, you will find, I think, abundant resources to fuel faith even in the midst of unimaginable hardship. That the God of faithfulness has been your God and faithful he will remain. Well, let's go to the third wave here of suffering. And it's, in, it's found in verses 12 through 18. And I'm sure you noticed it as we read the incredibly accurate account of the crucifixion. They pierced his hands and feet, bones exposed from from flogging, soldiers at the foot of the cross casting lots for his garments. It's, I think, one one reason we could list among many to, to trust that the Bible is God's word. Here we have nearly a millennium before um, Christ came, God inspiring David to write down Psalm 22, words which David's son would use on the cross to describe his experience. A lot could be said about these verses, but the thing I really want to dwell on just for a minute is is how these verses really describe the weakness of Jesus. How these verses describe to us the weakness of Jesus. The the New Testament makes much of this. So with the the idea of of weakness in mind, just listen to that description again. Dogs snapping all around him, roaring lions, gaping wide to consume him. Jesus is poured out like water. All of his bones are, are out of joint. His heart is like melted wax. His strength is Broken like a piece of pottery. And his mouth is so dry that he can't even speak. What, what is that? It is a description of someone who is at the very extremities of weakness. Surrounded by adversaries wanting to consume him. And so here we have, we have the, the son of God. By whom all things were created in heaven and on earth. The son of God who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The one who upholds the universe by the word 
of his power, we have that Son of God tasting weakness, experiencing in his body our weaknesses. And we need to understand that in this state, Jesus looked utterly pathetic in the eyes of the world. He, he was the epitome of, of weakness. He looked a fool after all that he had said and did during his earthly ministry. It's brought him to this. Crucified between two criminals and condemned himself as a criminal. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus laid down his life in weakness. Let me just mention three reasons or three lessons that teaches us. We're going to fly through these very quickly here. The first thing is God displays his power to save through weakness. God displays his power to save through weakness. Weakness. God chose, in the words of Paul, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Right? The world thought it was bringing Jesus to nothing by crucifying him, when in fact God was bringing the works of the devil and the world to nothing through the weakness of Jesus laying down his life on the cross. Another way we could say that is Jesus wins By losing according to the standards of the world. He lays down his life in weakness. And as he does so, the strong man is bound. The one who has the power of death, the devil, is disarmed. The works of the devil are destroyed. Principalities and powers are brought down. And the bondage of sin is broken. And people are set free. So that's the first lesson we need to understand. God displays his power to save through weakness. And that that leads us to the second one. Because God displayed his power to save through weakness in Jesus. And the second lesson is, and that's what he continues to do in the lives of those who belong to Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4, Paul says... That Jesus was crucified in weakness, but raised, but lives by the power of God. And then he goes on to say that he, Paul, he is weak in Christ, but he too will live with Christ by the power of God. Because this is the reality that is established in the, the gospel That what is sown in weakness in Christ is raised with Christ by the power of God. Friends, this is God's way. We, We need to understand the significance of this for our own Christian lives. What is sown in weakness in Christ is raised by the power of God. And third, the third lesson this teaches us, Jesus' weakness, it teaches us that he really is the perfect Savior. He is the perfect Savior. The reality that Jesus laid down his life in weakness brings us to the sympathetic heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he has a sympathetic heart for weak sinners, weak people 
like, like me and like you. And you know, the author of Hebrews, he, he picks up on this saying, we don't have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now what's that, what's that communicating to us? It's saying that Jesus is a high priest who has plumbed the depths of human weakness. He tasted it. He experienced it without sin. He died in weakness, enduring temptation. And let's face the fact that when we are weak and we're, we're worn out, we're, we're weary, we are especially susceptible to temptation, are we not? Our resolve is, is low, our defenses are down, we can so easily give up and give in to, to just indulge or to, to take the easy way out. But Jesus, Jesus is a savior who has tasted weakness we, we can't even fathom while being tempted and he never gave up and he never gave in. So what does that mean for us? It means we have a sympathetic savior who can really help us in the midst of our temptations, in the midst of our weakness. It means, as Hebrews puts it, that he is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself has been beset with weakness. You see what Hebrews is helping us understand? That his weakness is grounds for his sympathy with us. He, he doesn't run roughshod over his disciples saying things like, you know, come, come on, man. Get your act together. What, what are you thinking? No, Jesus is a sympathetic savior because he knows our weakness. And in verses 19 through 21, the, the, <clears throat> this third wave of suffering rolls back and, and we once again see Jesus' faith on display. And this time it's not looking to uh, God's past faithfulness. This time it is crying out to God for deliverance. That's how his faith is expressed here. Crying out for deliverance. It is a prayer for God to hear his cries, to intervene and rescue him. And you know, there is, a, there is, I think, a distorted, I don't even want to call it reformed theology, a, a deformed theology, if I can put it that way, that, that comes close to what people call fatalism. Right, thinking that the only appropriate response to, uh, to suffering is a kind of passive surrender to pain. This really is a deformed theology that I think is in danger of collapsing into the idea that suffering is in fact a good thing in and of itself. And that ever crying out for deliverance is, is a sign of a lack of faith. But my friends, suffering isn't good in and of itself. And the faithful do cry out to God in the midst of suffering, asking for deliverance. How, how do I know that? Because that's precisely what Jesus did. That's precisely what Jesus did. Jesus teaches us here that it is possible it is possible to humbly submit to the sovereignty of God while crying out at the same time to be delivered from trials. Now, 
we've, we've reached the, 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 really the pivot point of this psalm where we need, to, we, we need to begin to wrap things up here. The pivot actually, I think, is in the middle of verse 21. Notice that the first part of the verse is it's a cry to be saved from, uh, from his adversaries. And then the second part, instead of, a, instead of another request, instead of repeating a cry for deliverance, suddenly he, he declares, you have rescued me. Literally, you have answered me. It's as though the request for deliverance, the request for salvation has been immediately answered. And then from this point of the uh, on, the, the tone of the psalm is, is radically different. Suffering ceases from, from here on out. Here in this request, followed by the answer, we have nothing less than the death of Jesus giving way to his resurrection. Here in the second part of verse 21, we have, as we could say, the, the stone rolled away and Jesus Christ standing alive. And what's especially wonderful about Psalm 22 is that Christ tells us not just what it was like for him on the cross, he also describes how he responds to the fact of his death and resurrection. Before, before this psalm tells us how we ought to respond, it tells us how he responds. Look at verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. You see, Jesus responds to the deliverance of God from the dust of death with, the, with praise, with praise in the midst of the great Assembly in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, it actually reads, I will praise you in the midst of the great church, in the midst of the people of God, in other words. He's saying, I, I will be their worship leader, Father. I will be their song leader. I will be their director in worship, leading this great host of the people of God to worship you, a people from every tribe and language and people who have been redeemed by my blood. And, and as the worship leader, notice then how Jesus invites us. He, he speaks here to us, inviting us to join him in responding to the reality of his victorious resurrection. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For, okay, now, now Jesus is giving us incentive for worship. Here is why we should worship. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. You see what, we see what Christ is communicating there. The reason for our worship is that the Father has not despised his righteous Son. He has not abhorred the affliction of his Son. He has not turned a, a, away from the cries of his Son. Led by Jesus, 
We praise the Lord because Jesus Christ has done it. He has conquered sin and death, and the Father has answered the cries of his righteous Son and delivered him and vindicated him in his resurrection. And now we are summoned by Psalm 22 to worship because sin is paid for. Because the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied by the risen son. And so Jesus describes a great congregation gathered in in the wake of the great facts of his death and resurrection. And and just look who's there quickly. The poor and afflicted are, are satisfied there. Verse 26. The rich and prosperous are there. Verse 29, people from the ends of the earth are there. Verse 27. And so this congregation, this great assembly envelops all the ends of the earth as people remember and turn to the Lord. And the families of the earth worship as one people before God, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, people from every class and country brought into one assembly through faith to praise God because he has done it. And in verses 30 and 31, we we learn how this great assembly is being gathered. Take a look at the words there. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. In other words, a a missionary movement of sorts will be launched from the, the cross and the empty tomb that will span the globe and the years until people from all over the earth are gathered in this worshiping assembly led by Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we, we need to appreciate the fact that as we await the full reality of what that will mean for us, we, we at least in passing need to recognize that's part of the glory of the church gathered. When we come together Lord's Day by Lord's Day, we are told that we are gathering together in the heavenly Zion at Mount Jerusalem, coming through the blood of Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, into the presence of God, joining with this great assembly, praising God for what he has done in and through Jesus Christ. It's something that we participate in, even now, right now, by faith. And it's something we will participate in, in this great assembly, by sight, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. See, this is the message that has come to us. The content of this message could be summed up in the closing words of Psalm 22, that he has done it, that God in Christ has done it, that he gathers the nations and causes them to join in this unending course of praise. And as I said earlier, these are the very words that Jesus repeated as he breathed his last and hung his head He said, it is finished. He was quoting Psalm 22, really. He was saying, the Lord has done it. 
The work is done. Righteousness is fulfilled. Sin is paid for. There is nothing left for you and me to do but to turn to the Lord and put our trust in Christ. Psalm 22 tells us definitively the Lord has done it. Praise God. And with hope we can look forward in Christ to the day when He will return and and all of the people will be gathered together led by Jesus in thunderous praise to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you now for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ, we... We praise you for your willingness to take on flesh and to be obedient even to the point of death on a cross where you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thank you for doing that for us that we might be forgiven and reconciled to your Father and that we might call you our brother and be named sons and daughters of God's family. And now we would join our voices in praise to the God who has uh, redeemed us and has saved us and has claimed us for himself. Send us forth today with rejoicing and heartfelt thanks for all that you have done for us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.